I've always enjoyed listening to scary stories. Not like ghost stories or Dracula stuff, but stories about real things that actually went down. Scary stories about hairy situations. From HairyStories.com and STGB, I'm Matt G, and this is Harry. Dateline, Southeast Asia. Authorities reported the loss of one aircraft from ground fire. The pilot was rescued by helicopter. In that one line, there's a story. This is a story about that story. About that special breed of men who go into combat that others may live. The sheer number of aircraft lost in the Vietnam War is staggering. All told, the United States lost almost 10,000 airplanes and helicopters in Southeast Asia during the war. The majority of fixed-wing air losses were F-4 Phantoms. Flying fighters in this war was a dangerous business. Almost as dangerous as trying to save the pilots who were shot down. The para-rescue forces of the Vietnam War were a special breed of men. They risked their lives day in and day out trying to save downed pilots. More frequently than not, the enemy was lying in wait ready to blow them out of the sky as they made a rescue attempt. I asked Colonel Graves for an overview of who was doing what in a search and rescue, or SAR as they call it. Well, Matt, the, uh, the basic elements of the Air Force air rescue system, which by the way was the best in the world at the time, were Crownberg, call sign Crownberg, which is uh, an HC-130 for command and control, Call sign Sandys, which were World War II fighters for Rescue Combat Air Patrol, or RESCAP, it's called. And call sign the Jolly Green Giants. That's HH-3 and HH-53 helicopters, specially designed for air rescue. Uh, the normal airborne command post, called Hillsborough, in the daytime and moonbeam at night, would rapidly assume control of any search and rescue under the call sign of crown or king, okay? Then the Sandys, which are upgraded A1s that could carry more ordnance than a B-17, would precede the Jollies to the SAR site and suppress the enemy forces with deadly fire. And man, they had some deadly fire, let me tell you. The Jollies and the Super Jollies, very sophisticated rescue helicopters, would proceed to the scene under the cover of the Sandys and effect the rescue with highly trained para-rescue jumpers called PJs, some of the bravest guys in the world. As per usual on my trips to Texas to meet with Colonel Graves, we got into a bit of a session one night where he regaled me with fighter pilot stories. Some of them are quite funny, like this little one about a quick trip out of the combat zone to visit Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. Well, Matt, uh, concerning rescue, uh, I'm going to tell you kind of a funny and uh, embarrassing story. Uh, so I, I wandered down to my squadron operations one day. And the boss says, okay, you and Joe got to go take two F-4s and go to Clark Air Base and shoot missiles at drones. And we're like, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, you got like one day's notification maximum when you're in a combat zone. <laughs> and so we got together. 
trying to remember who the vaccinated were, but we just launched off and it's about a thousand miles over to Clark and um, it's just a nice easy cruise over there, you know, no mission planning, no nothing. And get over there and so we're going to go up and uh, shoot uh, Sparrow missiles, uh, AIM-7 missiles at drones, which is, you know, that's firepower, wonderful. Uh, I mean, shooting something out of the sky is... Uh, that's the quintessence, you know, whatever you want to call it, uh, of a fighter pilot, all right? So, so anyway, so we launch, and Joe's first down to shoot, and I'm in his trail, and he shoots at the drone, and I think he clipped it, but it, they scored him a kill, and then they turned it coming back my way, and I nailed it. We had him locked up, and I hit him dead center with my uh, missile, and so we knocked him out of the sky. They, they have a shoot comes out and um, usually they can with a helicopter pick them up out of the sea and use them again but you know you don't give a damn about that when you shoot them down that's it <laughs> you got them so hey we're uh, like this is fun and uh, we're back to Clark and going to of course the officers called for cocktails it's around cocktail time so we go to the world's largest uh, officers club bar which was the Clark Air Base Officers Open Mess. And if you take that acronym to put it together, it says Kaboom. Okay. So we went, we we're going to the Kaboom room, and in we go. And uh, so here's four of us fighter pilots. Uh, and it's the peacetime world. Everybody's taking it easy. You know, we're all jacked up working um, 12 hours a day, seven days a week in combat. And, uh, it's a much more hyper existence than the peacetime world. So now we're back in the peacetime world and kind of pisses us off. We're looking around and all these maybe 100 people in the bar are like, uh, you know, uh, they don't uh, know what's really going on. They don't know we're over there fighting life and death every damn day. So we decided to have a little fun with them. So uh, I went to the, uh, the main announcement booth and said, uh, Okay, we have uh, four fighter pilots in from the Wolf Pack at Ubon, and uh, we've decided to buy the bar. And we're going to, for the next 15 minutes, we're going to uh, free drinks for any fighter pilot in the room. And for anyone else, we're going to buy milk. And we wouldn't sit back down. <laughs> And we got some interesting stairs. We were sitting there. And there weren't many. There's only a couple of fighter jocks that came up, a Navy jock and somebody else. We said, hey, come on over. And then there was a real nice guy that came up and said, I really appreciate what you guys are doing, and I'll take a milk. So we said, fine, got a milk. Then about that time, this guy walks up, and he says, well, I'm not a fighter pilot. I'm a rescue man. What can you do for me? <laughs> and we went, uh-oh. <laughs> so I went, oh, my God. So, I, you know, this is a bad situation. So I ran back to the microphone and said, uh, I'd like to amend uh, our previous offer. We are buying uh, free drinks for any finer pilots for the next 15 minutes, uh, a glass of milk for anybody else. But for any rescue, air rescue person, we're buying doubles. And so that kind of got us out of that deal. <laughs>
quick break from the podcast. This is Matt. In episode 2, I interviewed Ed Cobley about flying night combat over Laos. Apart from being a pilot, Ed's one hell of a writer. He wrote the best-selling book, War for the Hell of It. It really helped me get a better understanding of what was going on in the fighter business in Vietnam. Well, he's written a fantastic new book called Fly with the Falcon. The subject might surprise you, but Ed's a master, and it's a great read. It's about sexual harassment in the U.S. military and peregrine falcons. It's set in Saudi Arabia and California's central coast wine country. And it's a tightly written, fast-paced narrative about how three troubled aviators, two human and one avian, find their tangled lives intertwined. As always with Ed's books, it features exciting aerial action, this time from both female birds and fighter pilots. It's about three protagonists searching for a solution that will give them back their freedom, freedom to fly once again. It's a great read, and you can find it on Amazon.com, Amazon.fr, Amazon.co.uk, and Ed will be happy to give you your money back if you don't love the book. Again, that's Fly with the Falcon. I highly recommend the book. And now, back to Harry. At the end of the last episode, an F-4 crew just bailed out over Laos after getting hit by enemy fire. When Colonel Graves first started telling me the story, he couldn't recall all the details and didn't know the names of the people involved. I spent countless hours researching it, trolling through military message boards, reading four books about search and rescue, and bothering several veterans. It was actually a retired Navy Admiral, Jerry Bear Taylor, who put me onto a website, vietnamairlosses.com, where I found a database of downed pilots. After a lot of back and forth with Colonel Graves, we found the names of the F-4 crew. The pilot was Captain Victor Smith, and the backseater was First Lieutenant James Feagan from the 390th Tactical Fighter Squadron at Da Nang in South Vietnam. On January 17, 1969, at approximately 2 p.m., their F-4 was shot down seven miles west of Japan in southern Laos. Captain Smith was either killed in the crash or executed by the enemy. Lieutenant Feagan ejected at high speed and landed in the jungle alive, but with two broken arms and a broken leg. He's now lying in the tall sawgrass, severely injured, hoping like hell he'll get rescued. Well, meanwhile, uh, back at Ubon, after all the day's events, hearing the beepers and then being briefed by the intelligence guys, on the shoot-downs all over the place. Um, the crews that were airborne at the time and now are commanders and intelligence uh, guys, we all uh, gathered in the Tactical Operations Center uh, to monitor what was going on here since obviously it was a major shoot-down. And uh, it's getting a little bit late in the day. It's getting to be about 16, 30 hours for civilians. That's about 4.30 in the afternoon. And it reiterated the story of what what has happened here. Uh, Stormy 2, which is a fast FAC out of Da Nang, that means fast forward air controller, was tasked to go take out a 37 millimeter anti-aircraft site. And it appears that the uh, anti-aircraft site prevailed and that they took a hit, had a high-speed ejection, uh, uh, the front seater uh, appeared to be either captured or killed 
and the uh, backseater was grievously injured. Uh, it turns out that he had uh, 11 broken bones, and he's lying on his back, uh, but able to talk on a survival radio. And uh, he's uh, gravely injured. And it's kind of late in the day, and there might be time for an attempt uh, to get him. And uh, at that point, Crownbird stepped in and took control of the search and rescue. And so Crown then scrambled the SAR forces uh, on alert at uh, Nakonfanam or NKP. And um, this uh, search and rescue has to take place before dark because you don't do them at night. And it's a now or never uh, situation because uh, informally everybody thinks that uh, this guy won't make it through the night with those kinds of injuries. So anyway, here's the SAR team. The SAR team uh, comes blowing out of NKP. They were on alert. There, there are two Sandys. That's uh, an A1. Uh, loaded wall-to-wall bombs, rockets, many guns, and you name it. Carries more ammo than a B-17 did in World War II. Two Jolly Green Giants. I think these were super jollies. They might have been HH-53s. And uh, they proceed, uh, proceeding to the scene. And so we're sitting there watching this. It takes a while to get from NKP over all the way across St. Lyles to to Chapone, and all of us are kind of sitting around there pulling for the guy and hoping that he makes it, and um, it's uh, coming to a consummation here pretty soon. Um, so pretty soon the rescue forces uh, uh, get there. Yeah, man, the site covers. I just have insight. Okay, the parachute is directly off my left wing. And uh, they made radio contract with Fagan, who was on the ground. And um, so the Sandys set up their pattern. They have a deadly pattern where they, and some of it's still classified even today, how they operate. They set up a pattern where they just literally destroy everything with hundreds of meters where the, um, the downed person is. And so they set up their pattern, they go in there, and then suddenly Sandy 2 uh, took a direct hit in, uh, from something. And he had smoke and fire in the cockpit, and he lost his controls, and he had to um, extract. You know, they have an extraction system. They retrofitted the ones so that, you know, that you could get out of them. At this point, a bad scenario just got a hell of a lot worse. The search and rescue teams at Nakhon Phanom, or NKP, were on rolling alert. So when the SAR was ordered, they were in the air in a matter of minutes. And today, they were heading for Chapone. Chapone was an infamous place along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and the graveyard of many fighter pilots and rescue forces. It's a name that sent chills down the spine of anyone who knew it. 
I imagine the Sandy pilot sitting on alert at NKP playing cards to pass the time, and within minutes being airborne, heading for dreaded Chapone, and then immediately taking a direct hit upon arrival and bailing out over this dreaded place. This is definitely getting hairy. And uh, so, but he got a good shoot, and um, so he either landed in a tree or went up a tree, but uh, they were able to determine that he was alive, and they made contact with him on his radio. So that Sandy too had just been just been shot down. So this just kind of discombobulated the whole search and rescue. Now we've got a possible uh, three uh, individuals down, and the light is fading, and um, there's no way with one Sandy now that they can. Um, and with the jollies and all this fire they're under that they could affect a rescue. So it's getting dark. And so at that point, Crown called off the SAR. Sandy pilots in the Vietnam War were a special breed. Their job was to fly slow-moving, propeller-driven aircraft from World War II directly into the blast furnace of a SAR. Engine. 18-cylinder, reciprocating. Cruising speed, 190 miles per hour. Range, 2,700 miles. Ordnance load, 8,000 pounds. Manufactured, 1945. Today, 28 versions later, the A-1 Sky Raider is the Sandy in Southeast Asia. Part of their job was to identify where the gunners on the ground were positioned. The way they did that was to get the gunners to actually shoot at them. All hell broke loose when the Sandys arrived on a target. It was a gritty, dangerous job, done by men with balls of steel, risking their lives to save others. The Sandy 2 pilot was Lieutenant Colonel Pete Morris. Lieutenant Colonel is a relatively senior rank to be in the middle of combat operations. One of the interesting things about the U.S. Air Force is that senior officers fly right alongside the younger guys in their prime. Colonel Morris went from being bored on alert to getting shot down in one of the most dangerous places on Earth in a very short amount of time. Now he's managed to get up a tree to avoid line of sight of the enemy on the ground. He knows they won't take pity on the guy that just tried to bomb the daylights out of him. While in the tree, he clearly saw soldiers walking on a dirt road just next to him. If one of them had looked up, he would have been killed or captured, or even worse. And uh, so everybody, we were all sitting around saying, oh, man, this is going to be really something. Uh, I wonder if they can make it through the night. Um, and the, the SAR guys, um, the remaining Sandy and um, the Jellies all headed back to NKP. And... Um, so now we're all sitting around and ruminating on, uh, well, there's going to be a hell of a story tomorrow. And, uh, you know, we're thinking, particularly, it's not only this one situation, there are all these other shoot-downs all over the theater, and the search and rescue forces are stretched to their absolute maximum. And so I was sitting there like this, and then uh, my squadron commander came up to me, uh, Colonel Dick Skelton, a, a splendid officer. And he kind of looks at me and says, look, uh, it looks like what's going to happen is we're going to cancel out most of all the sorties tomorrow. 
and um, the main effort is going to be on saving everybody. In that regard, we're going to do, there are going to be some diversions, and it would appear that we're going to fly four uh, flights of four F-4s here out of Ubon to strike targets in northern Laos as a diversion while the SAR forces are trying to go scarf up these guys. And he says, uh, I'm going to have you leading one of these diversions. And I had that to think about when I went home. And uh, before I went to sleep, because it was going to go. And I was going to be 3.30 in the morning, get up. And first light, everything was going to happen to go out. And the, the diversion was going to be going on. And the, the SAR forces were, were going to try to pick them up right at first light. That's the best time. And so um, that's what I had in my mind when I went to sleep that evening. As night is falling, we've got a lieutenant colonel hiding in a tree and an F-4 backseater with 11 broken bones lying in the saw grass. Both of them know there won't be another SAR attempt until the next day and that they'll either be captured, killed, or spend the night alone in the dark jungle of Japan. I can only imagine the sense of quiet desperation they must have experienced. Meanwhile, back at NKP, a new SAR team was being assembled for the first light attempt the following day. This wasn't going to be an ordinary search and rescue, if there is such a thing. They're going to have to form up two separate SAR teams for each of the downed pilots. One of those guys is their buddy and brother-in-arms who was just there with them hours before. It's now gotten personal. One of their own is in mortal danger. And they're going to make it a hot day tomorrow in Japan, whether he makes it or not. On the next episode of Harry. Sure enough, at uh, 3.30 in the morning, my alarm went off, and uh, and I got out for one of the damnedest days I ever saw in my whole life. Harry is an original six-episode series by HarryStories.com and STGB. 100% of donations to this podcast will go straight to the Air Warrior Courage Foundation, providing emergency financial assistance to veterans in need. If you're enjoying this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and write us a positive review. The theme music is Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata by L'Orchestre Cinematique. Cover art by Florence Denise. Source material for this episode included Faces of Rescue by Military Arts Pictures, All for One by Periscope Film, Jazz Loop Music by Anne Schwa, and Ambience Creepy Wind by Inspector. Thank you for listening to Harry. <laughs>